0: God always keeps his promises. And on a day like today, on Good Friday specifically, we see the ultimate display of the lengths that God is willing to go to make good on that promise. To be the one who he promised he would be, to do what he said he will do. It's actually as early as Genesis that we begin to see God making his promises about how he will undo sin. In Genesis 3, it's God himself who even says already at that point, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. From the moment that sin began to ripple its way through our world, which in the earliest days of the creation story, what we see is that parallel rebellion, a rebellion in the spiritual world and in the earthly world. We see that playing out in our own world as, the, as often we are drawn to sin and darkness and rebellion. We see it in the early stories of the scriptures in murders and death and destruction. And from the very beginning, what God does is he speaks into that in order to make a promise. So that when we see the effects of sin, when we see the sin in our own life, when we see the sin in the world around us, Jesus makes a promise. And God, from the very beginning, makes a promise. He says, I'll undo that. This is the same God that we worship on Good Friday as we look to the cross. The cross as the ultimate display of undoing the effects of sin of fighting against sin and death, of fighting against the enemy. The cross is the ultimate display of God keeping his promises. In Hebrews chapter 2, it describes it this way, for this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. In other words, God saw it necessary to be made like us, to become one of us, to enter into humanity in order to sabotage the work of the enemy, to fight back against the darkness of our own sin and the sins of the world, the brokenness in this world, in order to cover over sin, in order to rescue, in order to be a priest who mediates on our behalf, removing the separation between us and God. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it it describes that same act this way by saying, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That God who knew no sin actually became sin. It's actually on the cross where we see Jesus become the worst sinner of all history. Jesus becomes the worst possible sinner you and I could imagine because the cross is the ultimate display, the ultimate act of love. It's the ultimate keeping of promises. And so at moments when we contemplate that kind of love, our hearts are moved by the magnitude of the promise. We we can't help but ask how deep, how wide the depth and love of God is. When we see the suffering, when we see the hurt, when we see the tears. At other moments, as we reflect and think about this day, we are broken. Broken in heart because of the the awareness of our own sin. Because, Because we know the things we've said, we know the things we've done, we know the things that we've tried to keep hidden. And we know, if we're honest, it's that sin that drove Jesus to the cross that our own guilt and our own shame and our own fear, that out of love Jesus went to the cross in order to rescue you from your sin. There are moments as we reflect on this sacrifice where we see the authority, we see Jesus with power speaking against sin and against death and against the enemy. In other moments we witness the fragility of Jesus' life. We see Jesus at times scared, we see Jesus abandoned and alone. And it's on that cross that an exchange takes place. An exchange where you and I receive what Jesus deserved. We are called righteous when you and I aren't. We, we look to the cross and Jesus offers himself as the sacrifice. You and I receive forgiveness. Jesus receives the punishment, the penalty paid, and it's on that cross where Jesus is demonstrating his great love, his love which is fulfilling the promises that have been made all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. And so today we reflect on that kind of sacrifice, a sacrifice that wasn't forced upon Jesus but was made freely by Jesus, a sacrifice made out of love, out of commitment. And so I'm gonna open up to the book of John. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, we're gonna be in John 19, and we're gonna begin reading in verse 28, and just reading a couple sections sections from Jesus as he hangs on the cross. And so I'll begin in verse 28. It says this. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jews did not want bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another Scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Notice what we read here in John as John records for us John later tells us that all of this is written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah that he's the anointed one that he is the king. And so simple statements that John records here even a statement like I am thirsty which then get p- partnered with a statement that we is easy for us to reflect on like it is finished and both of these John is pointing to something significant about the way God responds to his promises. In verse 36, it clarifies that for us. When it says, these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. In other words, the things that happened to Jesus on the cross, even the way his body was taken down from the cross, is all part of God keeping his promises. It all It's fulfilling the promises, the prophecies, that hundreds of years, even before this moment, it described what this moment would be like. When Jesus says, I am thirsty, it's not just about his thirst. It's about God keeping his promises. Certainly, Jesus would have been thirsty long before this moment began. A crucifixion was excruciating and exhausting, On his journey to the cross, he would would have been scourged by flogging, a crown of thorns jammed onto his head. He would be nailed to the cross, and he doesn't ask for something to drink. At least it's not recorded until this point. John has something in mind that he wants us to notice when he records it at this moment. In the words, I'm thirsty, it's not just about thirst. This is about prophecy, and it's about promises. It's It's a phrase that would bring to mind The Israelites who'd been waiting and waiting for a Messiah. Wandering in the desert. It's about the hundreds of years of unmet expectations. Of waiting for God to provide food and drink. It's it's about slavery and rebellion and desperation that is met by a God who always keeps his promises. Even for you and I... It echoes those same truths in those moments where we feel like we are waiting on God to respond, waiting on God to act, waiting on God to show up, to do something. At times, you and I can even cry out like, God, why haven't you done what I've asked? God, why aren't you meeting my expectations? Why aren't you doing what I know you could do? Jesus, in saying, I am thirsty, and in John highlighting it, he wants us to remember, even in those moments, those moments of waiting, that God keeps his promises. And so when Jesus speaks of his thirst, the soldiers use a sponge of sour wine on a hyssop branch and hold it to his mouth. Now, for any of the Hebrews who are reading John's text, it would bring up all kinds of imagery for them. For them, it's not just what happens to be at the scene, in Exodus 12 verse 22, which the Hebrews would have been so familiar with, it describes an image by saying this. It says, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. Later in that same chapter it says, you shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt. For John, he wants to bring something to mind about what's happening on the cross. He wants to bring to mind a moment for the Israelites that was about a Passover, about being rescued from slavery, a moment where where people were reminded that God protected them when they were slaves, when they thought all hope was lost. And so John uses this language to paint a picture of a new kind of Passover To see in Jesus a new rescue. A rescue not from slavery in Egypt, but a rescue from a different kind of slavery. A slavery to sin and to death. A slavery to the enemy that Jesus has come. And it's a new kind of sacrifice. And unlike the old sacrifice, which would be repeated year after year, this sacrifice would be different. This sacrifice would be better. A sacrifice that Hebrews 10 describes when it says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. In other words, everything that they had read and memorized, everything that they saw promised in the prophets, it was just a shadow. Just a shadow of what would come. And so then Hebrews 10 continues, it says, For this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. And then in verse 7, it says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. That I am thirsty is an image that Jesus is the one who had been casting that shadow. That all of the Hebrew scriptures, all of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, all of those laws, all of the prophets, all of, all of those hints throughout the Psalms of David that would have this sense of waiting and expectation that one day a Messiah would come. One day the one they called the son of David, that he would come. Jesus was that one who cast that shadow. And it's the cross. That would be the moment that all of it was pointing to Jesus' death and his coming resurrection. And so this is who we remember today, that Jesus is that promised one. And the cross is the display that God keeps his word. In Psalm 69, we see the way those words came out in that shadow, that shadow of Jesus. In Psalm 69, 21, it says, For my thirst... They gave me sour wine to drink. The shadow was pointing to this moment that John describes. In Isaiah 53, which was written 700 years prior to this event, the prophet Isaiah described it, and these words are are even hard for us to believe that they were not written at the time of Jesus. Isaiah, even some some would call it almost another gospel of sorts because of how clearly it describes the sacrifice, the work of Jesus. It says this about Jesus, 700 years before Jesus. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. See, as Jesus hangs on the cross, as he suffers, as he is led Like a lamb to the slaughter, he is fulfilling the words of Isaiah. When Jesus remains silent when asked a question, he is is making good on the promise. In, In the words, I am thirsty, and then in the words, it is finished. Jesus is making a declaration of who he is. In the words, it is finished, we see the kind of promise that you and I can hold on to even today a promise that what happened then has significance right now a promise that we can hold on to knowing that the price the price of sin it's paid a promise that tells us that the work of Jesus it's complete it's finished it's accomplished it's complete it's fulfilled it's done it's attained See, when we're reminded of the work of Jesus, we can be reminded that our forgiveness, our atonement, it certainly relied on works. It just never relied on ours. It relied on the work of Jesus on the cross. The cost of sin, which is death, and that moment, Jesus says, paid in full. All of the debt wiped out. It's fully, it's completely paid. And so your works did nothing for it. In fact, it only earned the debt that had to be paid. But Jesus' works, on that moment, on that day, erase and wipe out your sins. On the cross, Jesus does completely what is required for you and I to be a part of the kingdom. Jesus, the Messiah, the King who is on the throne, demonstrates the good news. The gospel, the reality that his authority is over sin, is over death, is over the devil, and none of that has claim to you and where you belong. In Isaiah 53... Verse 4, which we read earlier, it says, Surely he took up our pain, and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed." Jesus, stricken by God and afflicted, pierced in his hands, in his side, for you, for I. That punishment, which we see in Jesus in anguish and suffering, is what brings us peace. Peace knowing that our guilt still doesn't hold us. Peace knowing that we aren't defined by our sin. Peace knowing even what we fear the most doesn't win. Your rescue from sin wasn't free. It cost Jesus everything. It's by his wounds we are healed. And so when we look to that... There's almost even a sense that you can feel the depth of that cost. When you hear Jesus say words and when you, when you imagine the scene when Jesus even proclaims words like, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's almost a sense like you can feel the loneliness that Jesus experiences in that moment. Because it's in that moment, in that being forsaken, when Jesus has been abandoned by his closest friends, when he is mocked by those who watch, it's Jesus in that moment not forsaking us. In being forsaken, you and I are never forsaken. In being abandoned, you and I are promised we will never be abandoned. Have you ever felt alone alone in your fight against sin, alone relationally, alone in what you are afraid of, if you've ever felt abandoned or left behind, Jesus felt those same struggles. And Jesus feels that in that moment for you because of his promise To you, It's in that moment on the cross where Jesus feels the full weight of sin and its consequences. It's in that moment where Jesus feels what you felt like when you were alone just so he could keep his word to you. It's in that moment where Jesus feels the pain of all evil in our world. Where Jesus feels the full weight of all the brokenness, of all the death, of all the loss and the sadness, of all the sin. And he feels all of it in that moment... To keep his promise for you. It's in that moment where Jesus feels the heartbreak of your unanswered prayers. It's in that moment where Jesus feels the tragedy of asking God to show up. And feeling like by all appearances he didn't show up. Jesus suffers in that moment feeling forsaken and alone. In order to never abandon you no matter what you're up against. He kept that promise, and he continues to make that promise to you. In fact, even in experiencing the full weight of sin and death and abandonment, he's promised he will never leave, he will never forsake you. And while some might even try to twist this into some kind of anti-loving message to turn the display of the cross into uh, some scene of divine child abuse, this is not what happens on the cross. This is not a display of a father forcing his child. This is the picture of Jesus willingly giving up his life for the people he loves the most. It's a friend laying down their life for their friend. It's the husband who sacrifices himself for his bride. That is the picture of Jesus on the cross. Jesus goes to the cross willingly, There are moments, like even even in the mocking and jeering, where they insult Jesus and say, Jesus, why don't you come down from the cross? He could have. And so it's in those moments when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where Jesus is realizing the full weight of sin, knowing that that is exactly what's necessary to save and to rescue you. He's knowing that in those moments, in that weight, that He is forgiving all of your sin. Everything you've said, everything you've done, everything you regret, He is undoing it in that moment. In that moment, He is rescuing you from the pain and from the trauma that you've experienced. Knowing that all of the evils of the things that you wish you would never have to relive, Jesus is enduring all of that in that moment. Maybe for some of you, it's the pain that you've felt even over the past 12 months. The unanswered prayers, the isolation, the loneliness. It's in that moment that Jesus is even suffering alongside of you. Crying out. Maybe what you have cried out, God, where are you? God, why am I alone? When Jesus hangs on that cross, he feels the weight of all of sin. Feeling all of the effects of sin and the way sin has rippled throughout our world. In order to suffer alongside of you. To never leave you alone in your suffering. And so when Jesus cries out in those moments, he is paying the price of sin once and for all time. It's in that moment that Jesus dies for you, not a future version of you that is through whatever you're trying to get through. He's not dying for the version of you that has made it through the pandemic. He's not dying for the version of you has finally figured things out. He's not dying for the version of you that's gotten rid of your doubts. He's not dying for the version of you that has stopped struggling with sin. He's dying for you right now. When Jesus dies, he dies for all of sin, past, present, and future. And it's in that moment of darkness... That we see God demonstrate the lengths he's willing to go to. In the darkest moments. God refuses to let sin separate you from him. In those most desperate moments. God refuses to let death get the last word. As fear leaves you paralyzed and unable to act. God refuses to leave you alone. When your guilt makes you relive your sin and your choices over and over again. God refuses to leave you there. It's in that moment that we are reminded that no matter how dark it gets, God won't leave you there. No matter how big the sin is, he won't give up. No matter how many we have hurt, he won't stop forgiving. And no matter how alone we feel, he will never leave us. Because in the death of Jesus, the price is fully paid. The work is finished. So on that cross, Jesus makes a promise to you. A promise that declares that your sins are forgiven, that you are rescued, that you are made new, and that nothing will separate you from his love. Let's pray. Jesus, we Thank you for your love, for your sacrifice. For the promise that when you hung on the cross, you gave your life for us. That your sacrifice wasn't for a future version of us that stopped sinning, that stopped worrying, that stopped doubting. But it was for us in the midst of all of our struggles, in the midst of all of our insecurity, in the midst of all of our doubt. And so Jesus, we come before you Aware of your sacrifice, aware of your love, aware of your promise, and we beg you to forgive us. And in that begging and that pleading is not in desperation, but knowing full well that you always keep your promises. So Jesus, in this moment, as we confess our sin to you, I pray that you would just bring to mind our sin. Bring to mind things that maybe over this past week, over this past year, the things that we've regret. Bring to mind things we've said, things we've done, things we've thought. Bring those to mind so that we don't hold on to them any longer, so that we can just give them to you. Hear us now as we confess those to you. When Jesus spoke the words, it is finished, he meant it. Those sins which you have confessed, those sins that you experience guilt and shame, those sins don't define you. Jesus' promise that it is finished applies to you just as much as it ever has. Your sins are forgiven by the death, by the blood of Jesus. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.